0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome
1: back to Terra Informa. I'm Andrea Weep And I'm Sophia Osborne. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world.
0: This week on Terra Informa, we will be looking back at the past two weeks of climate change news with the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent special report, which discusses the impacts of an increased mean global temperature of one and a half degrees Celsius. Then, we've got an interview with an IPCC Working Group co-chair from last March, when we covered the panel's Cities and Climate Change conference here in Edmonton. Now, here's the update on all that happened this past week. The IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released its most recent report last week on October 6th. The details of the report are staggering. The 728-page special report, urges that drastic action is required to keep a mean global temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius, as opposed to the originally agreed upon two degrees. At present, human activities are already, quote, estimated to have caused approximately one degree Celsius of global warming above pre-industrial levels, unquote. The report is urging policymakers to implement aggressive measures to limit temperature increases to a half a degree Celsius more, in order to avoid major climate-related disasters such as extreme weather events, rising sea levels, and total
1: ecosystem eradication. In response to the report, an emergency debate was called in Parliament on October 15th to discuss the drastic measures needed in order to cut emissions enough to meet the half-degree goal. However, according to an article by the CBC, current measures including, quote, carbon pricing, renewable power, and technological innovations, unquote, Are not going to be enough to get Canada to that goal. The article quotes, Canada would need to cut its annual emissions almost in half from current levels within 12 years to meet that goal, but currently aims to cut them by a little more than 25% by 2030.
0: The message of the emergency debate was ultimately a call for leadership. Green Party leader Elizabeth May stated that, quote, we will leave our children in an unlivable world, not a world of forest fires and flood, but a literally unlivable world if we don't grab the chance to hold the world to one and a half degrees Celsius, end quote. Conservative MP Gerard Del Tell said that some things need to be done, but a carbon tax is not the way. Environment Minister Catherine McKenna maintains that the Liberal Party's existing framework will be implemented before taking more ambitious measures. And in a separate interview with the CBC, new Democrat leader Jagmeet Singh criticizes liberal measures as being insufficient to meet emissions targets, but does not assure that his own proposed plans for climate mitigation will meet the half-degree target either. Now, to give us some insight into the IPCC, how it works, and what challenges the panel faces, here's an interview from March 2018 when we covered the IPCC conference on cities and climate change. Here's Terra informer Dylan Hall speaking with Deborah Roberts, co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's second working group titled, impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. The two discuss the IPCC as an organization, bridging science and practice, the importance of informality,
2: and encouraging activism. My name is Deborah Roberts. Um, In my day job, I'm a local government practitioner. I work in the city of Durban in South Africa, so a hands-on manager of a growing African city. Um, in my other day job, which is quite an interesting situation to find myself in, I'm a co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I'm helping oversee the production of the Working Group 2 contribution to the six assessment cycle. So we've got a strong interest on the impacts, adaptation and vulnerability caused by global climate change. Um, and so I literally span from the local to the global, from practitioner to scientist.
3: So what does it mean to be a co-chair of the IPCC? What do you spend the majority of your time doing?
2: Seems these days traveling and attending meetings, but in, in reality, the role of the co-chairs of the three working groups and our um, Task Force on Emissions Infantries is to oversee the technical work of the IPCC, which means we um, assist the volunteer scientists who write our reports, um, to produce those reports. Uh, we are supported by technical support units, so we have a small group of people who are full-time and work with us. But really, we're responsible for the quality control, ensuring the reports are delivered on time, meet the outlines provided to us by governments, because governments decide what they want the reports to cover. And so we ensure that that material is, is presented as far as possible. And we interact with the government. So it's, it's a huge process of co-production. The volunteer scientists produce the reports. We then take it back to the governments um, who look at the summary for policymakers with us and, and work through that so that we reach joint agreement on, on the messaging. So in effect, we're, we are... Very privileged to to work with some of the best climate scientists in the world um, and assist them in delivering these very important policy-relevant reports.
3: So, as an intergovernmental panel, how does the IPCC ensure representation from a whole bunch of different countries? And I suppose for you personally, how did you get involved? Yeah.
2: So we've, we've got a very strong commitment to regional balance. Um, so when you look at the election of the Bureau, so the people who oversee the assessment and so the co-chairs are part of, of the Bureau, there's a very strong attention to regional representation that all of the regions of the world are represented. We've just gone through the process of selecting the authors for the main assessment report, and again, what do we look at when we assess authors? Obviously, expertise, experience relevant to the topic and the chapter that they will be involved in, but we're also looking at gender balance and regional balance, And the reason we look at those is not because we want to be politically correct, but we know that diverse voices will bring very different uh, views um, to the assessment process, and so that's critical for us is to have those very different opinions because the assessment process isn't a linear uh, process. We need those diverse voices to say, well, we think it means this, no, we think it means that, and then they reach a a common agreement on that. How did I end up there? Um, I was nominated, so the... Bureau is made up of people who are nominated by their um, countries, and we are then elected. So I was nominated by South Africa, and I suppose putting uh, words into the mouth of of my government, they felt it was very important in this assessment cycle, which is so policy relevant. So this is the post-Paris assessment cycle, a time when the policy direction of the globe has changed. They wanted someone who had a strong grounding in science, because that's my original training, but who was also strongly aware of the pushes and pulls in the policy space, who had real on the ground, in the trench experiences. I was very fortunate following that nomination. Uh, the countries um, who voted the elections felt that those skills were, were relevant, and, and so voted me in.
3: I've heard that in many ways, this conference in cities is partially your child and a focus of yours as cities. Um, is that true?
2: Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, it's, it's definitely been my mission as, as a co chair, particularly as the first um, co chair who, who is a practitioner scientist, not a full time research scientist, to think about what value add I can bring. Um, and I think the value add lies in, in the fact that there are an increasing number of us who are bridges between the scientific and policy world. Um, and I think common sense is is also a, a big directive in this. The majority of us now live in cities, so if we're concerned about where climate change impacts, it impacts cities very directly. If we're concerned about adaptation, the best opportunity society has to adapt lies in the way it develops its, its cities and, and human settlements. And certainly vulnerability is is a key issue. If we look at where all the urban growth is currently, It's in the cities of the Global South. And some of the most vulnerable people now exist in those cities In some of the most vulnerable high-risk areas in those cities. So to my mind, cities are a pivot point. If we're serious about really transformative action, changing people's lives through science, probably the best vehicle for that is, is through the world cities. And so this is a real attempt now to bring science into the real world, to connect with a whole new level of policymaker, the policymaker who's right at the coalface, who every day has to take decisions um, that impacts on people's lives. And um, I think solutions are going to come out of the world cities simply because they have to deal with that reality in a very immediate way. You know, if if a crisis happens, who are you going to phone? You're not going to phone your prime minister. You're going to look for your mayor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's, Uh, where the solution space is is most active, and we need to get that solution space working towards a climate-smart future. Um, And I think the the great leadership we've seen from Mayor Iverson here in Edmonton just speaks to us. Here is a mayor who has a real eye on the present, but a very keen eye on the future, who understands the role of science in changing the future of his city, um, and is keen to be an active agent for change. And look how rapidly he's changed the discourse. it's it's amazing you would never get that change as rapidly at a national level so a real catalyst for change
3: so in your talk yesterday you said that three of the most difficult problems and complex problems in the world are climate change urbanization and globalization i was wondering if you could frame the connections between those things in relation to cities for us
2: so I mean, I think urbanization is is a very obvious one in the sense that, as I said yesterday, we're living through the most rapid period of urbanization in our species history. So you know, over the next 40 odd or so years, we're going to have to build the same amount of infrastructures we built over the last 4,000. There just simply isn't enough um, resources available in order to do that. So. That's a a huge disruptive force in the sense that we're gonna have to think very differently about how we develop going forward, because it's physically no longer possible within the limits of the globe to achieve that. But the people are coming. They are migrating into cities. You've got natural growth in cities. Um, And if you look at the revision of the world population estimates, they've just been revised upwards to potentially almost 11 or 12 billion people by the end of the century on the back of sub-Saharan African growth. And a lot of that growth will occur in cities. So you've got this enormous push of people, but an inability to repeat what we've done in the past. So that's why urbanization is such a disruptive phenomenon. Obviously, that links into climate change in a big way, because all of this big city build is now going to happen in a changed climate. And what is unique about cities is cities have always been located where there's been stability, where there's been access to resources. And we've had a more or less stable climate, which has allowed these big economic infrastructural centers to emerge. and Now you're changing the rules of the game, particularly because the majority of our urbanization is um, happening in littoral areas, so coastlines along rivers. These are areas which are going to be very vulnerable under climate change conditions because of storm surge, sea level rise. So you're changing the rules of the games for cities, you're doing big city build, but changing the sort of age-old rules of city building. You are finding cities now in places where they can't rely on on long-term climate being amenable to to their activities. So that's where those two, two link in. And then the globalization, of course, speaks to the nature of what cities do. So climate change speaks to where they are, but globalization speaks to what cities do because they are now the heart of the world's economy. Um, And so the rules of that game become particularly uh, important. So if you talk about my own city region, for example, how have we been impacted by globalization? Well, if you look at the trade rules, what happens around poultry production in places like North America and Europe? Those parts of the world now only eat the white meat of the chicken. So you end up with whole half a chicken It has to go somewhere. And the trade rules currently allow for, for example, a massive dumping of the brown meat in countries like our own. And because we can't protect our poultry production, that means that in my city region, we've had to close large chicken farms because of this dumping. So the whole economy of the city is now impacted by this set of global rules, which doesn't set a fair playing field. And I think that's that's the problem. So now you've got big city build in an untraditional form because a lot of it is going to be informal. It's going to be small and um, medium-sized cities in places like Africa. That big city build is occurring in a situation where the climate is changing dramatically and impacting all the resource bases. And then you've got these rules, which means there's no fair playing field economically to allow cities to... Um, have the resources and safety nets against these changes because poverty is this huge magnifier of all of these other problems. If you're poor and you're facing all of these other threats, you just don't have the resources to deal with them. So they form this, literally a perfect storm in many places around the world. Um, And that's the difficulty. At the city level, you can't only opt to deal with climate change. It's not all about carbon. You've got to think about employment and poverty, and you've got to think about infrastructure provision, and you've got to be able to come up with an equation that allows you at the end of the day to produce cities that are sustainable, fair, equitable, and everyone has a decent chance of life and then at, at well-being. So, and that's the real conundrum for the 21st century.
3: So you mentioned where you're from and Durban, South Africa. Yeah. I'm curious, you've written about it as a case study for urban action and transformative adaptation to address global environmental changes. Can you help listeners envision Durban and envision it, how it's adapting and acting?
2: I mean, Durban I think is in many ways, although South Africa stands apart in terms of its level of of urban development from many other countries on the African continent because we are very highly urbanized compared Mm -hmm. to the more rural landscape of of other cities. We're a coastal city, we're a big port city. but we're also quite a schizophrenic city because you'll see we've got a strong urban core, which looks very much like downtown Edmonton, if, if you had to have a look at it. Um, but at the same time, that urban core and within our same municipal boundaries is surrounded by vast areas of rural land under traditional leadership, so tribal leadership. So again, not dissimilar to, to the Canadian um, situation. So you've got a complex governance system between a city hall form of government and our more traditional forms of of government and and land tenure, which is is a challenge. Um, We are a biodiversity hotspot. So there are 36 biodiversity hotspots around the world and our city is located right in the middle of one of them. Mm. So obviously we've got an enormous responsibility to ourselves and to the world at large to protect that biodiversity. Um, And at the same time, we've got the highest levels of poverty of any of the major South African metros. So we've got all of this happening. So the question is, under those sets of circumstances, obviously development and upliftment of the poor and marginalized is important, but at the same time, we can't ignore climate change and biodiversity issues. So we've looked for opportunities to intervene that allow us to deal with all of those. So just as we've spoken about urbanization, climate change and globalization, how do we get in there and have interventions that allow us to work with, with all of those particular challenges? So we're probably best renowned for our large scale reforestation work. I think we've still got the largest scale reforestation projects uh, in South Africa in, in our city, um, where we've looked at recouping some of the lost biodiversity. So we've had very unsustainable land use practice in the past large scale sugarcane farming, um, There have been opportunities now in parts of the city to replant the indigenous forests that uh, would have existed in that area. We've done that by virtue of working with surrounding poor communities, assisted by an NGO, where those communities have grown the trees to rebuild the forests. What they have then received um, in return for that are credit notes. So if you grow a certain number of trees, a certain height, you get a credit note, and you can use those credit notes entry stores to get building materials, clothes, bicycles, and so on. And those interventions have allowed communities to do a number of things. Some people have learned how to drive, they've used their credit notes to get driving lessons. Some people have sent their children to better schools. Some people have got building materials to build houses for for the first time for, for their families, promoting a cycle of upliftment in those communities. Um, but also an opportunity to raise awareness around climate change to show that while there is a, a challenge afoot for the city, there's an opportunity in our response to that challenge to ensure that we address poverty uh, as, as well in, in that particular cycle.
3: If I was a mayor of a city, how would I access that scientific information? Or should I? Um, how, do we, how do we bridge that gap? Yeah.
2: And and this is where I feel passionately that the the role of the educational system and universities is in fact the glue that holds this um, very important set of, of circumstances together, because we have to train a new breed of people. You know, when I went to university way back when Moby Dick was a guppy and dinosaurs still roamed the earth, you went into the science faculty and, I mean, It was uncool to go to the side of campus that the social scientists were on. That's how distinct the division was. We were not told that people existed, that people were relevant to our science. Um, And certainly, so we were given a whole set of high-level scientific tools, but I had to learn for myself how to use them in the real world, in the political space. You're not going to get a mayor who's going to naturally adopt science. You're going to need the bridging people, the people who can speak both languages. We... It is so urgent that we can't afford to have the situation I had where I had to teach myself to be operative in the real world. We need to be training people to be those bridging people that, who, who understand the languages of both, who understand the dynamics of both to assist the mayor because the man has a very clear vision. He's got a political role. He's got a leadership role. He needs people who can help him, who can do the translation to bring that information. I think once you've got those bridging people in, life becomes so much easier so around me in my previous department I built a team of 40 people who are bridging people scientists but who can work in the political environment and that's allowed us to have a very significant impact in our city on the development debate by having these people who can work so to me where we really need to be focusing our attention is universities universities need to be training people to be these bridging people I think they're getting better the transdisciplinarity But they're still not good enough in training people to be operative in the real world. And what that means, was those are a different set of rules to the rules of natural science, social science, arts, philosophy. And we need to be be equipping people to do that. And it's not for everyone. So not everyone is going to play that role. But there certainly are an increasing number of what I refer to as practitioner scientists. Um, But we need to be more... Uh, active in producing those, producing a production line of those. So that the mayor doesn't have to become a scientist, hmm. but he has someone at his side who can translate for him. Or her.
3: So one thing you said yesterday that I thought was really interesting was that we are not building cities for living, but for the investment of capital, and that needs to change. So I'm wondering how and what needs to happen for city planners to stop focusing on investment and focusing on resilience and livability and well-being? Hmm.
2: You see, and and I think that really links to a change in value systems. Um, You know, so we're building systems or cities around a current set of values which prioritizes GDP, profits, growth. And I think there's a a new narrative which is countermanding that, which is about well-being and well-being in a situation where you don't have to drive incredible growth. And it's about equality and justice. But again, that's a very new conversation in the urban space. Um, and I think we need champions for that. Um, and so I think there's a strong call in meetings like this to draw out those people who have that new vision. You know, the fact that we spoke yesterday very strongly about informality, governance, politics, suggests that the narrative is changing. But I think there's a strong, you know, I'm a strong believer in activism. I think there's a strong call for people to rise up and say we need to do something in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and by people being courageous enough to make that statement, other people become courageous enough to challenge the system. Because it's very hard to change these systems. You know, they are put in place for a reason. Um, they're difficult to change, but that's where it comes down to the individual. Each one of us needs to become an activist for change to change that understanding of what we want out of cities you know, the kind of cities we want. Um, and the fact that the responsibilities, and I believe that's where Mayor Iverson is, you know, has that bigger vision. He's responsible for Edmonton, but I think in the role he's adopting, he's seeing himself as also being responsible for other cities around the world by leading a new debate around the, the role of science. And so I think we only change that by virtue of changing ourselves and expressing that we want something different and new. And I think that—that that is emerging but it needs to be stronger, needs to be louder, more vocal, and that can only come from all of us uh, articulating that need.
3: And you said we can't understand urbanization without understanding informality. What is informality? Why do we need to understand it?
2: For cities currently, the rules of the game are known. We have a certain idea of city structure, form, operation, infrastructure, um, and, and processes that happen in the city. Informality is really everything that happens outside of that um, traditional approach to to urban development. So it's development that happens outside of the control of town planning schemes. It's economic activities that doesn't fall within the usual regulations of countries or nation states or, or cities. It's the places where people are building cities for themselves because the current city doesn't meet their needs. They are constructing elements of the city that is responsive to their poverty, their lack of access to formal systems, their inability to penetrate um, very rigid economic systems which have certain rules of the game that that don't allow everyone in. So the real city builders um, are those people who are now saying, well, the current city doesn't work for me, so we're going to create another version of the city which does work for me, which allows me to access it and to to create create a livelihood. And because of the pressures on the Global South, that informality is certainly most prevalent in the Global South, but I can see it in all my travels. It's beginning to emerge in cities of the Global North as well. I mean, go to Paris currently, this wonderful, beautiful, grand, classic city, but on the streets, entire communities are living um, in an informal way because that big classic city currently can't respond to to their needs, and so I think that pressure will increase as the number of people increase, as the resource pressures increase, as this hyper-political world continues to be so political, and people find it more and more difficult to um, secure their safety. I mean, I've just met someone from Eritrea who's working here in a security role, in in and he had to flee his country because of security reasons. I think as borders break down and people have to move and the rules break down, this informality will increase in the north and in the south, and I think we have got to own that as one of the major megatrends of the 21st century. We want it to go away. We think we will make it go away. We simply will not, and I think that's the new – we can learn lessons from from that that approach to the city. We don't want to romanticize it because it is hard and it is difficult. We want to improve well-being there, but I think it's a new form of city building, it's about that right to the city and access to the city. And, and people now are saying, well, if cities are the place where the world is actually happening, the economy, the socialization, the culture, we all want a part of it. And, and we have to open up the doors more effectively in cities. So we're going to have to throw out some of the rule books I'm afraid.
3: So Deborah, I could keep talking to you for an hour, but we are out of time. If there was any one big takeaway that you could request listeners to take with them, what would it be?
2: Yeah, you know, I've I've kind of got to the age where I've I've reverted to um, my youthful activism again, and it would really urge people to become city builders in your own right. And and you can build cities in in a number of ways. Get to know your neighbours. Um, be responsive to who you vote into government. When in your cities. Hold your leaders accountable. Recognize that your city is part of a huge socio-ecological system that covers the face of the world. Think about what activities in your cities mean for people in far-flung places in, in other cities. So be more cognizant of your role as an individual in the largest system that we as humans have built and that your activities, be they what you do in your home, how you get to work, the food you consume, the leaders you elect all have an impact on our future and be an activist in all of those roles. I think people see, well, I can't be an activist because that means I've got to sort of camp outside Wall Street. No, you can do it in day-to-day activities. And I think that's the core for the 21st century, is we all have to become activists. Again. So I urge you all to be city builders and activists in your own personal ways. That
1: was an archive interview from March 2018 at the IPCC Cities and Climate Change Conference when Dylan Hall spoke with IPCC Working Group Co-Chair Deborah Roberts.
0: And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to hear more coverage from the IPCC conference last March in Edmonton, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for more interviews on climate change and other environmental issues.
1: Terra Informa is produced at CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 Territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene. And many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to terra@cjsr.com at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terrainforma. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to everyone who worked on this week's episode
0: Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, Shelley Joduin, David Draper, and Dylan Hall.
1: We've been your hosts, Andrea Weed and Sophia Osborne. Catch us again next week right here on tara Informa.